You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Uh, the message that I want to talk about this morning is the grace that makes you glad. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The grace that makes you glad. And what we're going to see here is a little autobiographical sketch that Paul lets us in on of his life with the Lord that I think will tell us a little something about how grace works out in the life of a believer. Um, I don't know. Uh, have you heard about grace? Do you know about grace? Well, I hope you do. I hope you do. The Apostle Paul, he was called the Apostle of Grace because no one spoke more in the New Testament about grace than Paul did. Oh, if you know something about grace, it means unmerited favor. It means God's everlasting love upon you. And there's really three dimensions to that, or at least, at least three dimensions to that. First is that the word means gift, which means that you can only receive it from the Lord. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. Second, you can't earn God's favor by being a good person. Uh, you can only just receive it as a gift. And third, that favor is completely unconditional. You can't do anything that God would take his favor away from you. His grace is always there with you. Isn't that an amazing thing about grace? Um, Jesus is, of course, the greatest example of God's grace because God sent his son, even though we did not deserve it, to shed his love upon us by dying upon the cross for our sin and raising again from the dead. That's the greatest example of God's grace within our life, in our lives. That's how we know the unmerited favor of God. And that grace that God has given us has two effects on us, at least two effects on us that I can think of. The first is that, is that sense of God's presence in our life and his love shed upon his heart, right? It says in uh, Romans chapter 5 that, uh, you know, the hope that God gives us doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out upon our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful to think about? Is that sense of God's presence, his power, and his love within your life is the effect of God's grace upon you, his everlasting love in your life. And so the second of effect of grace is to know that he empowers you that he gives you the power to live the Christian life through his grace. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said it wasn't him that labored, but the grace of God which was with him, which meant to say that God's everlasting love was actually the power source for his life as a Christian. So there's the two effects of grace, God's presence within your life and then the power to live the Christian life. Isn't that amazing? So I want to give you an illustration today of how that grace actually worked out in the Apostle Paul's life. I want to show you that. As we study the scripture today, I just have three simple points that I want to give to you. First, God blesses us with the best. God blesses us with the best. Amen? Amen. Second, this might be harder than amen, God balances us with the bad. He balances us with the bad, okay? And then third, God benefits us beyond what we ask for. God benefits us 
beyond what we ask for. And what we're going to see through the life of Paul is that the grace of God is what grew him to be the Christian that we know him to be. And this is the grace that made him glad. So once you bow your heads and please pray with me this morning. Uh, Jesus, we're so thankful for you. Lord, we're so thankful for the grace that makes us glad. Lord, thank you first for the the everlasting sense of your presence within our lives, God. How much you love us unconditionally. How much you've given grace as a great gift to us, God. Oh, Lord, we just thank you. How that grace empowers us to live the Christian life. Lord, we're so thankful for your presence here this morning. But teach us what it means that grace grows us into the men and the women, the families that you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, this good part. God blesses us with the best. Let's take a look at Paul's revelation from the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. I'll just read it here for you this morning. Um, in just a moment, actually. Here Paul's writing what's his second, is his second letter to the Corinthians. In this letter, the main point of it is that he's kind of defending himself against what he calls the super apostles of the church of Corinth. Now, these aren't like kids superheroes, right? They're not wearing tight pants and a cape or anything like that. But these are guys that are uh, basically gifted mightily by the Lord that do all these mighty signs and wonders. And they don't have a problem telling you about the signs and wonders that they're doing. And the church there has been really tough to deal with by Paul because these super apostles were prideful about their credentials. And they wanted to really just allow to promote themselves, to lift themselves high because of these things, and they want to diminish Paul's ministry. So Paul's forced into a position where he has to defend himself against these super apostles, all the things that they're saying and how they're kind of putting him down. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to completely turn around their ideas of what it means to be a great man or woman in God. And what he's going to say is it's not by promoting yourself, telling people about your spiritual experiences, how wonderful you are, the mighty acts that you're doing for God. It's actually by celebrating the weakness that's in your life in which the grace of God can most fully work through you. And that's what he's really going to talk about within this passage. And so for the super apostles, it was showing their mighty signs and wonders that was great in their lives. But for Paul, being a great Christian leader was about celebrating his weakness so that the power of Jesus could be on display in him in a a more powerful way. But first, he's going to boast about what God has done in his life to get to that. So watch for it. So here it is, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 6. Here it is, it says, it's doubtful, not profitable for me to boast. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Now, let's take a look at these revelations that Paul had. First, he talks about knowing a man in Christ who had these visions and revelations. But later on in the chapter, we really know that this is Paul. 
And he's just speaking of himself in the third person because in that day it was a common rabbinical way to basically take attention off yourself by speaking yourself in the third speaking of yourself in the third person. Now it might seem a weird tactic, but that's just what's up with this. And this man, Paul, had this in-the-body or out-of-the-body experience where he was caught up into paradise and saw these amazing things. Now, he talks about these things in terms of the third heaven or paradise, which are basically identical terms for referring to the heavenly realm and the place in which where God dwells. And he can't even speak about the things that he's seen, inexpressible words that are not lawful for a man to utter. That's what he's saying these things are. And so this revelation was so wonderful, beautiful, fantastic. He couldn't even tell anybody what it was. Now, this is probably like the time that Pastor Rick and Pastor Jeff are having in Hawaii right now, right? They're in paradise. And when they come back, they're not even going to be able to tell you about it, right? It'll be inexpressible words that they can't even utter. Pastor Rick will just be flabbergasted. He'll just be mute for the time that he's preaching his next message here. I hope he's having an out-of-body experience on a wave right now. Now, this wasn't Paul's only mention of revelation within the Scripture. He was a man of many revelations. Just think about the revelation that Paul had on the road to Damascus, the bright shining light that comes upon him, right? He falls to the ground. He hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's blind for three days. Now that's a revelation, right? And then we know that he didn't even receive the gospel from another human, right? He received the gospel from Jesus Christ himself in a heavenly revelation. Uh, Galatians 1.11 through, through 12 says this, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's practically the only person that I've ever known in biblically that did not receive the gospel through another man. He received it by a revelation directly from Jesus Christ. So Paul received the gospel through revelation, and probably most importantly is just think about this. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, Paul wrote 14 of those books, right? This was a man that was accustomed to revelations from God, right? He was able to write Holy Scripture. The most uh, written books of the New Testament are from him. Now, the application of this is that God blessed Paul with the best, and he blesses you with the best as well. You might not have had the revelations that Paul had but I guarantee if you're a Christian sitting here this morning that God has given you the best. I want to give you four things that I know that God has given you the best. First, he's given you God as your heavenly father. Isn't that amazing? All right. He's given you the one that's your perfect father. He guides you. He protects you. He provides for you. That's what it means. When God gives you the best, he imparts himself to you, and he imparted himself to you as your heavenly father. Think about this. God has also imparted himself to you through his son. He's given you the best through his son so that Jesus would come. And as we talked about before, even though you did not deserve it, he sent his son to die for you upon the cross and raise again from the dead so that you would be saved. He's given you the best because he's given you his son. Isn't that, it's, a, it's wonderful. It's, it's great to think about. God's given you the best because he's given you his spirit. Just think about that. 
God's empowering presence in your life is through the Holy Spirit who is given to you, who dwells within you, that comes upon you in dramatic, wonderful ways. Aren't you thankful God has given you the best to get through life because you have the Holy Spirit living within you? Okay, God has given you the best because he's given you his word to learn, to meditate on, to be encouraged by. He's given you the best. He's given you all those things. Now, you might be saying to me, Lars, those things are just, you know, those are things are just spiritual things. How about the house, the car, the family, all the stuff? Well, yes, I believe that God gives those things to you, but the focus of our lives needs to be on the spiritual things. Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God first, and then what? All these things will be added unto you, right? When you focus on what is get, God has given you, the best things, him as your heavenly father, him as, his, as God's son, him as the Holy Spirit, then, then you start to acknowledge and have gratitude in your heart all that God has done within your life. Amen? God's given you the best. So, um, as we're thinking about, that's the good part, right? That God blesses you with the best. Now, I have to be honest with you. God balances the best with the bad. God balances the best with the bad. This is not exactly the part of the message that I would want to be listening to, but I hope you listen to this morning. Okay. I don't know what's happening back there. Probably something bad. Now, look at this. Uh, if you look at verse 7 in chapter 12, if you look at verse 7 in chapter 12, I hope it's nothing bad. For the sake of the band, I hope they don't get, like, electrocuted when they come up and do the last set. And all my words become prophetically true in a, in a mishap with the band. I'm not saying that. Casey, I'm not saying that. Okay, I'm not saying that. So seven, uh, verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, here's a principle here. Because God is so good in your life, he will never allow you to develop spiritual pride or any form of pride. He will always humble you. That's how good God is. Because if you had all good things in your life, you'd be so prideful, right? You'd exalt yourself, just like Paul was saying. He'd exalt himself because all of those amazing revelations within his life and God could have let him go on that way, but it would have never been the best for Paul. So God sent a messenger of Satan to humble him. There's the principle. God will always balance your life with the bad because he knows it's not good for you in your pride that you needed to be humbled. Now, um, in much the same way Paul was exalted by the abundance of the revelations he received, he was giving a corresponding thorn in order to humble him. Now, People have all different kinds of ideas of what these, this thorn was. Could have been a physical thing. It could have been uh, his eyesight was bad, right? It could have been a speech impediment. Both of those things are really mentioned within the scripture, things that we know that Paul struggled with. Um, it could have been epilepsy. People think that, you know, since he was stoned, I'm, I'm not talking about what he smoked, but that he got hit in the red with rocks too much, that he had epilepsy, okay? It could be many of Paul's many spiritual opponents, 
the super apostles that are at the church of Corinth, the guy named Alexander the coppersmith that Paul mentions in his letters to some random guy that Paul was just a pain in Paul's bottom, you know, just a terrible guy in his life. And then there was the Jewish leaders that just hated him. Remember, he was arrested and thrown into prison in the temple. Uh, all these things that happened to him. The truth of the matter is that we don't know what it was that was the thorn in Paul's life. But I, we can tell you, I can tell you three things about it. First, it was inherently evil. It was inherently evil. It was called a messenger of Satan. There's nothing good about the thorn, guys. There's nothing good about the thorn in that way. Second, it was something that buffeted him. It's something that just didn't happen once in his life. When you're buffeted, it means that you're kind of continually beat up, incessantly kind of uh, thrown around, basically. It was something that beat him up a lot. And then third, we know that it was given to him. And the inference there is that it was given to him by God. And I think that's what's most difficult for us to understand. It says in the word, lest I be exalted above measure. It was actually put into his life by God in order to humble him. Basically, unless he had the thorn, he would have gotten too prideful. Now, I'm not going to tell you, I completely understand this, how God could allow Paul to have this thorn, this messenger of Satan in his life. Why would God allow Paul to be beat up relationally, maybe even physically all the time? Why wouldn't he use another method that wasn't a thorn in the side, a messenger of Satan? Okay? Why didn't he? I don't know. That's not a question I can answer. I don't think it's a question that Paul can answer, right? He says, but even though I, can, I can't answer these questions, I believe that God knew exactly the right tool to use in Paul's life to make him the Christian man that God called him to be. And that tool was used in his life so that Paul wouldn't exalt himself above measure. God used this thorn to humble him. Now, in the 80s, maybe Casey remembers this, there was a beautiful song. It was called Every Rose Has Its Thorn. It's written by Poison, right? And uh, maybe, maybe Casey will play it after the service. No, please don't do that, Casey. But it was written by a guy named Brett Michaels, and the whole idea behind the song was that as uh, Brett Michaels' musical career started to blossom and grow, that was the rose, his relationship with this woman called Tracy Lewis, his girlfriend at the time, they broke up over that. So his thing was, you know, as his musical career grew, that was the rose, but then the thorn of it was his, it was his breakup with, uh, with uh, this woman, Tracy Lewis. Now, I'm not going to relate the Bible to some 80s glam rock band, but there's a principle here that I think that it's important. Here it is. With every spiritual blessing, God does an act of humility in our hearts to keep us from pride. It could be some feeling of inadequacy, some sort of suffering, a hard relationship, or something else. Now, why do I think this? The reason why I think this is because God makes such a big deal about humility all throughout the Bible, all right? It's a huge theme in the Bible. I can talk about it from the Old Testament. Uh, here's a couple verses. Before his downfall, a person's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Second, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor in life. That's Proverbs 22.4. In the New Testament, Jesus repeats three times, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted says in James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5.6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. If there's one principle in the Old Testament and the New Testament by Jesus, James, and Paul, is that humility is necessary for your walk with God. It does three things. It keeps you from spiritual pride, which can creep into our life at any moment, our thoughts that just inflate and exalt ourselves. It keeps us from serving one another for the right reasons to honor God and not ourselves. And third, it keeps you face down before God in complete dependency upon him. You know, humility is not humiliation. Humiliation is walking up here with your zipper down, which I've done that before. Okay, that's humiliation. I've had to have the crowd pointed out to me. Okay, I won't. Anyway, I shouldn't have said that. But humility is not that. Humility is emptying yourself, right? It's emptying yourself of all that you are so that God can fill you. That's what real humility is. It's complete dependency upon God. It's that it becomes not about you, not about your pride, your selfishness, or anything like that. It's, you're emptied of all that, and God starts to fill you with himself. That's what real humility is about. It's not humiliation. It's really a good thing. I remember early on in my Christian walk, this guy came up to me after Bible study. Whatever you do, Lars, don't pray for humility. Don't pray for humility. God might just do that within your life, okay? No, it's, you need to pray for humility. It's actually the foremost virtue of Jesus himself, right? If you look in Philippians 2, it says that. Jesus humbled himself, taking a form of a servant, right? Jesus wasn't humiliated. It wasn't like humility was not part of Jesus's life. It was actually the foremost part of his life is that he was emptied of himself so that he could be that bond servant that went to the cross for you. Amen? Don't start me preaching, guys. I'll just start going. I'll start going. I love the gospel because of that. Now, it's because he values your humility, he'll bring those trials and adversities in your life so that you're blessed with and you'll depend completely upon God in the trial. Okay. Now, I want to tell you one last thing on this topic of God, how God balances us with the bad, is that we will always struggle with God in the trial. We'll always struggle. I don't care who you are, we're going to struggle. If you look at the verse in our next passage, our next verse in the passage of verse 8, we see that Paul's struggle was no easy matter. He said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I think what's significant about this verse is that Paul struggled with God over the thorn. It's no easy matter. He begged God for its removal and God, that God would see to it to remove it from him. And if you look how many times he begged, did you see how many times he did it? Three times. I just don't think that this was in the same prayer session. God, would you remove that thorn? God, would you remove that thorn? God, would you remove it? I don't think it was like that. I think there was three times of super intense intercession and prayer before the Lord where Paul really sought God and said, God, would you do this? Would you remove this thorn from me? I can see him just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? As Jesus prayed three times for the Father to take that cup from him right? The cup of his father's wrath. I can see Paul beseeching God three times of intercessory, intense prayer, saying, God, remove this thorn in the flesh from me. But did God do it? No, he didn't. And if there was anyone that knew God, it was Paul. You would think that if anybody's prayer would be answered, it would be Paul, right? 
that that trial would be removed from him. Think about this. Jesus had already revealed himself to Paul on that road to Damascus. He'd already gone out on three missionary journeys all over the known world at that time, started planting churches all over the place, right? And you'd think that his prayer would be answered in just the way that God, that he would want God to do it, but it wasn't. And he struggled, and he struggled, and he struggled with this. I don't know, I don't think it was ever removed from him, to tell you the truth. Now, guys, I have to tell you that some of the hardest times in my life with God is when my prayers aren't answered the way that I want them to. It's not that they're just not answered the way I wanted to. It's that I'm just really like, why God, right? Why won't you answer this prayer? I feel like I'm pursuing it in a godly way. I feel it's unselfish. I feel it's like something that God would want to do, but yet he doesn't do, all right? Some of the most discouraging times in my life. I don't know if you know too much about me, but my second daughter, Lindy, she was born uh, with a heart defect. And we were down at UCLA Hospital, and, um, you know, we were praying that she wouldn't have to have these two open-heart surgeries that she had eventually had to have. And we just started praying to God as her oxygen level would dip. They said, if it's below 70%, then we're going to need to do the operation. And so that we would just be praying to God, God, would you let her oxygen level be above 70? We know that we, she wouldn't have to do these two open-heart surgeries. But God didn't answer that prayer we wanted to, and she had to go through those two open-heart surgeries. And I don't know if you've ever been in the position I had, but when you're putting your baby in the hands of a surgeon, there's no more helpless thing, that position that you can be in as a dad when you have to go through that. And that's, a tri- that's just one of the trials that I've been through. But I can just tell you how much that tested my faith. We'd be down there in the UCLA hospital, in the, in the hotel there, just so depressed. Like, God, what are you doing within our lives? What's happening within our lives? And it always makes me think of hard-boiled eggs because that's the only thing they serve for breakfast at that hotel. And we would just be in that hotel constantly eating these hard-boiled eggs. And to this day, I still can't really enjoy a hard-boiled egg. Just makes me, as I was thinking about telling you that story, that's what popped into my mind. That's just kind of how crazy I am. Anyway, the principle here is that it's so important that we'll always struggle with God in the trial. God knows your number. He, always, he will always get you in the position where you have to go right to him, where you're going to be face down before them, and you'll struggle just like Paul did. I guarantee. And this, that's where the place you are today. Uh, later on, we're going to have a prayer team up here, and I want you to be able to come up here and pray. Because if you look at Paul, he didn't stop praying, right? He prayed first, second, third time. And I'm not saying that every trial will be there to stay, because I think there's a lot of evidence of God removing trials from people at a certain point as well, but it may be. But that just shouldn't stop you coming to God. That shouldn't stop you praying and interceding for that thing because God will change your heart as you do. Um, I think we just need to have those low, discouraging times within our lives. If, God, if somebody tells you that God only allows good things in your lives, don't believe them. It's not true. It's not the life that you live. It's not the life that I live. It's not the life that anybody lives. Uh, God will allow bad things in your life. Think about Job, right? Just a man, materially wealthy from the Lord. What What does God do? He allows Satan to buffet him and take everything from him, right? Think about David. He was anointed king over Israel, 
but then he had Psycho Saul following around in the wilderness for years, right? It's crazy. Uh, think about Joseph. He was a favorite of his father, Jacob, but yet is sold as a slave, falsely accused and thrown into Egyptian prison. Think about Elijah. He's a prophet of God, but he gets on Ahab and Jezebel's hit list, and he goes out in the wilderness, and he's like, God, just take my life. Just take my life. Here's the other part of the truth. God allows these bad things into our lives to balance out the great things that he's done for us, to strengthen our character and to make us into this Christian men and women that he's called us to be. Did you notice that in each of these stories, God worked out a good thing? Job, he restored all his fortunes after he prayed for his friends. David, he was the greatest king over Israel. Joseph was made second only to Pharaoh and saved his people from the famine. Elijah entered into glory into a chariot, into glory in a chariot, avoiding death. And it's almost like God said this, all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Wait, God did say that. That's Romans 8.28. I can't believe I just said that. Wait. Okay, God did say that. That's right, in Romans 8.28. And that brings me to my last and final point. God benefits us beyond what we ask for. Now, it's not only that God blesses us with the best, that he balances us with, with the bad. He also benefits us beyond what we ask for. We see God blessing Paul with these incredible revelations, really an incredible life, though yet allowing a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to produce humility and dependency in Paul's life. And now, we'll see how God speaks into his life. And aren't you glad that you have the Bible for this? That Paul actually went through this in order for him to get these words from the Lord that would be there for us to encourage us for all our human lives? Let's take a look at verse 9. I just want you to get this phrase because this phrase, I'm hoping that it takes you through every trial of your life. And here it is in verse 9. He said, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Let me read it again. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Remember, it was during this time of prayer that Paul's totally begging God, and he speaks these words into his life. I want you just to look at the first two words. My grace. The first two words that Paul speaks uh, that God speaks into Paul's life is my grace. He's like, Paul, I'm enough for you. My everlasting love, my grace upon you, the sense of my presence with you, my power in your life is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. It's like Paul saying, the Lord is saying this to Paul, you don't need anything more than the way that I'm loving you right now. You don't need anything more than the way that I'm loving you right now. I want you to get this and say that one more time. You don't need anything more than the way I'm loving you right now. That's what God is saying to each one of you. He's loving you. He's never loved you more than he's loved you right now. His love is unconditional. It never changes. It's so powerful within your life. Whether you believe it or not, his grace right now is sufficient for the trial that you're going through. Isn't that a good thing? Now, look at this. The thorn in the flesh is the place 
where that word can be spoken into your life. It might not be the only place, but I can tear, I can guarantee you that is the place that God will speak that word into your life. When you're going through the trial, when you're face down before God, when God has just got you in a position you don't know where to get out of, that's where God will speak this word into your life, just like he spoke that, Paul, that word into Paul's life. And amazing, you can count on that. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Wow. Now, that's a great principle, that Christ's power is perfected in our weakness. The, flaunt, the thorns in the flesh, the nose that we're getting from God to remove them are actually the place where his power can be on display. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. How do people grow in Christ? How do you grow into spiritual maturity? Is it through Bible reading, prayer, sharing your faith, fellowship with others? Those are the four things that I know. I've taught those things. But I think it's actually a lot deeper than that. I think those are great practices. Those are practices that I use every single day. But I think that actually the place that you will grow as a Christian is where you're vulnerable, where you're insecure, where you're sick, where you're going through the trial, where your relationships aren't going well. That's the place where you will grow as a Christian. That's the place that God will speak into your life. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in your weakness. Wow. I hope you receive that word. That's the word that I've received in the trial. I hope that's the word that you receive in the trial. And actually, I think that's where you grow in your Christian life, when you experience the greatness of God's grace, when you know that you don't have it all together, right? I think that's the, that's the place where God moves within your life, that he actually shows you the Christian man or woman that you can be, what God has called you to be. It's in that place of weakness. I don't think it's in your strength. And this is the place that Paul says that he actually has developed pleasure or gladness within your, in your life. In verse 10, it says this. It says, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says that it's mostly his boasting in his infirmities that actually gives him pleasure, right? He's in pleasure of those things. It's the grace that makes him glad. He started to understand that, that the trials that are happening within his life are actually the place that God is working the most, and that actually is making him glad. It's making him happy. I don't think he's a masochist or anything like that. I think this is actually a spiritual thing that God has done within his heart to say, hey, this is where I understand God is where you're moving the most. That's where I want to be. And so, God, I will undergo all these infirmities, all these reproaches, all these persecutions, and then I'll be able to see how you're moving and how your grace is really sufficient for me. And that's when Paul senses that Christ is strong within him. He ends it with this powerful statement, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think this, this is a truer 
and greater and more powerful understanding of grace than just like, hey, everything's good in my life, right? I think there's that type of grace, but I think there's a truer, more powerful understanding of grace where you're able to stand, you're able to see how grace works in the secret place with God, in the place of suffering, in the place where God is moving, but nobody else is seeing in your life, the trial that's got you face down before him. That is the place of grace. Okay. So what God's saying is I want to move powerfully in your life, but your strength is getting in the way of my strength. Another way to say it is this way. You've got to be small so God can grow tall within your life. There's no other way to do it. The road of maturity is really marked with increased humility so that God can be on display in your weakness. That's the only way that he'll be made strong. Now, I'd like to tell you just a story um, as I finish up. Uh, I was probably 18 or it was probably 18 or 19 years ago. I was a believer, and I wasn't really living my life for God at all. And I was uh, bound up in drugs and alcohol, and uh, it was just a train wreck of a situation within my life. And I came into Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara one morning. I think it was like 2003, 2004, somewhere around that time. And I was just undone before the Lord. And actually, um, at the end of the message, I went up and I went, on the, I went to the prayer team. And it was your pastor. It was Rick Soto that was standing there. And I just came to him and I just started crying my eyes out. Because I was in a place where I was totally done with my life. I know I had messed it up. It was a complete train wreck. And I was just so, just, I was just so broken. And Pastor Rick actually prayed for me. And I believe that that was the time of transformation in my life where the power of Christ really came upon me in a powerful way. I don't even really think I felt it at that time, but I knew that I was done with myself, and I was just in the weakest state possible. And as Pastor Rick prayed for me, I just felt like things changed within my life. And even though I was still challenged, I was still in that situation, and actually I'd be in that trial for another you know, year and a half or so after that, that's when God started to work through my life in a powerful way. Now that might be, this might be your day to admit weakness. Maybe it's coming back to the Lord like me. It's like maybe you need to come back to your heavenly father. Maybe it's that place for you this morning where you can admit your weakness. And we'll soon take a moment where you can come to the prayer team and you can pray for that. Now, you know, once I knew God is the one that only blessed me with the best, and I was just thankful for his blessing and all the great things that he's done in my life. But then my understanding of God deepened when I saw that he balanced it out with the bad. There's things that God allows in my life, will allow in my life, that will cause me to struggle with him. I know I'm not done yet. But I can tell you in each one of these bad things, God will speak those words to me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Today, I don't know where you're at. Maybe today you're in between trials and everything is great in your life. Amen. I love that. I try to abide there as long as I can. Again, I don't like pain. I don't like suffering. I don't like going through trials. But if you're there today, maybe this is your day to pour into somebody else that has a trial going on in their life. You know, spend some time praying with somebody that you know is going through the trial. They need your support, their love, need it more than you know. Or maybe you're today you're struggling in the trial. You might be like Paul begging God that he would remove the trial. You might be, have a hard time understanding what God is really doing within your life. 
Well, this is a time that you can come and that you can spend time in prayer asking God to move in your life. Or maybe you're growing in the trial and you see how God's hand is moving. He's spoken that word to you. My grace is sufficient to you. My power is perfected in your weakness. And you feel like you're growing and God is maturing you in that way. Well, this is a great time just to come up and in prayer and be strengthened. As we close in prayer today, I want everyone to bow their heads, close their eyes. We're going to bring the prayer team up to be available to you in just a moment. But I first want to give a chance for any person that has not accepted Jesus Christ within their life. And so would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes with me as we pray? Jesus, thank you so much for your loving kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you speak that word to each one of us. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, that as you speak those words of grace to us, you might strengthen us in the trial, God. I pray for anybody here, Lord, that has not accepted you, Lord, that wants to allow you permission into their lives. Say, this is my day, Jesus. I admit my weakness. I'm coming back to you, Lord. And if that's you today, I want you to pray just a brief prayer, just to repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose again. I want you to live in my heart. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want new life in you. No matter how hard it is, I know it's better with you. Lord, I receive you into my life. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.